John chapter 12 and beginning at verse 12. Let's hear God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Do please sit down. Well, we're back in John's Gospel, and the theme that we have identified from John's Gospel is life to the full, life to the full. And I suppose that everyone wants to discover life to the full. Um, We want a life that is meaningful, has an impact, that makes a difference, that is significant, that counts for something. None of us None of us, none of us here want to live the kind of life whereby we're just going through the motions, whereby, you know, what was the point of it? Why did I live this life? What am I here for? None of us want that. We all want the kind of life whereby we know that we are in our sweet spot, whereby we know that we're doing something that really matters, where we know that our life has significance, where we know that we have life to the full. Everyone wants to discover life to the full. And John, John's Gospel, uh, this book in the Bible called John's Gospel, he wrote this Gospel to show us how to have life to the full. That's what he's doing. And so he describes how Jesus says that he has come to give us life and life abundantly or life to the full. And then John also says that he wrote his gospel for this purpose, for this aim, for this theme. He wrote this gospel that we might believe in Jesus and by believing in him have life. That's why he's written it, that we might believe, commit to Jesus, be someone who follows Jesus, not just notional, mental ascent, not just intellectual. Yeah, I think Jesus existed. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy, but no, I'm, I'm following him. Uh, that's the one I believe in. I'm trusting him with, my, with who I am. Believe in him, and then you'll have life. That's why he's written this gospel, to show us that that's how to have life, life to the full. And right at the beginning of his gospel, in the famous prologue, this extraordinarily deep, philosophically profound beautiful um, introduction to John's gospel. He says that in him, that is in Jesus, is life. And John means that not just existence, but life, as in life abundantly, life to the full, what life is really about. In him is life, and therefore if we are also in him, we will have life. That's John's case. The whole gospel is about that. 
So we come to this morning, this part of the story where Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And what's happening is this is Passover. So Passover was the great feast of uh, God's people in, in the Old Testament, whereby they remembered what God had done to rescue them from Egypt. He had passed over them. So God, the story of the Bible is that God is good, he loves people, and yet we are rebels, we've sinned against him, so we're all deserving his condemnation, his judgment. And yet, though that's true of Egyptians and Israelites, the Israelite people, because of the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, God passed over them, he forgave them, he reconciled them, he he. he, he, he saved them from Egypt and brought them out into uh, the desert to worship him. And all that, the Passover, celebrates. It celebrates the Lamb through whom they were forgiven. And John says, the Lamb of God is Jesus. It's in him that you'll have your sins forgiven. And now it is at Passover where they remember the Lamb and Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to Jerusalem. So uh, Jesus had become famous, okay, in this part of the story in John's gospel. He, 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 he became famous because of his teaching and because of his miracles. His teaching was really unusual. So, of course, a lot of teachers at the time, a lot of rabbis, Jesus' teaching was electric. It sort of had a throb of a thrill to it. And why that is would be another whole sermon about it. But Jesus spoke with authority. He spoke with power because he really relied upon God and his word. It wasn't simply a bunch of, well, this person says this. The other person says that. No, it came with authority and power. And so his, his teaching was electric. It spread with a throb of a thrill. And also his signs. Uh, he performed stunning miracles or signs. And the first half of John's gospel, which basically we've just gone over to the second half now with, with this part of uh, chapter 12. The first half of John's gospel is often called then the book of signs. Jesus performed miracles, these signs to show who he is and that in him you may have life, that he is the one in whom is life. And the most um, extraordinary of those miracles Jesus had just performed right before our passage. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as he'd done that, he said, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so now, of course, he is famous, his teaching and his signs. And there's Lazarus that these people had seen alive. They'd known he was dead, and now he is alive. The ultimate validation, um, uh, verification, proof that Jesus really was the one in whom you have life. Lazarus, who was dead, is now alive. And the one who did that was Jesus, so in Jesus is life, uh, was going along with this whole movement, this Jesus movement, if you like, that was happening at this time in the gospel. But now we come to the second half of John's gospel. And that, while the first half is often called the book of signs, the second half is often called the book of glory, for always focused now on Jesus' glorification through his death and his uh, resurrection from the dead, his glory. And this will happen during Passover. And Jesus is now going up to Jerusalem for this Passover. This is the one in whom we have life. Lazarus raised from the dead to show this is the one in whom you have life. And you can discover in Jesus' life to the full. But the question, of course, is how? And what does that mean? And how do I enter into that life now? Well, so the story begins with a sense of relevance, of timeliness, of current events. Look at verse 12. The next day. 
the next day. So John, by putting it this way, is telling us that there is a countdown to some big event. At the beginning of chapter 12, he says, um, six more days until Passover, but now it's the next day. So there's a sense of six more days, the next day. You get the sense of something big is about to happen the next day, the next day. And uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, I want to stop there right away and make some application. So the large crowd, all gathered, are focused on hearing that Jesus is there. And there is an immediate application uh, for those of us who are church people as well as for those of us who are less regular at church. Sometimes in churches, it's almost as if Jesus is being hidden. You know, they'll talk about everything else, anything else, and the social aspects of the community. You know, it's a really good community, that church. They'll talk about that. Um, the good works they do, oh, they're really involved with various things. They're doing a lot of good works. Um, the coffee they have. Um, usually terrible, by the way, church coffee. The only thing worse than church coffee is no coffee at all. Or perhaps there is something worse. It's church tea, terrible. Um, Or um, they'll talk about the music, uh, the style of the church, the uh, clothes they wear. You know, those people wear those kind of clothes. Those people wear the other kind of clothes. Mm. The building they have, you know, is that kind of building or is this kind of building? All this church stuff. Uh, it would make a good little blog post on Babylon B, if you know what that is. It's a little insider joke for Christians. A web page that is funny, always putting up little jokes about church culture. All this stuff, all this church stuff. Where is Jesus? It's almost as if we're embarrassed to mention that is why we're here. You know, I'm not here because of the clothes you wear or the style of this or that part of what we do or we don't do. I'm not here because you're all such lovely people, though I'm sure you are. We're here because of Jesus. And what we have to offer to you, if you're not a regular church, and if you're not regular church, I'm glad you're here. What we have to offer to you is not better coffee than Starbucks. You know, if I'm going to get Starbucks, I want a really good cup of coffee, I'm, I'm going to go to Starbucks, you know. Or maybe somewhere else if you don't like the green lady. But um, that's not what we have to offer. Not better coffee than Starbucks, but a better savior. A better savior than money or pleasure or that nagging sense that you have at the back of your mind that your life is not going anywhere and you're looking for some solutions. That's what we have to offer, a better savior. They heard that Jesus was coming and there was a throb, a thrill. And so as a church, we, Cottage Church, are always to put Jesus front and center. Majestically front and center, but also humbly, as we'll see, that's the focal point here, his humility. And I want to say this, if it's possible, you are not experiencing much spiritual life. Maybe you're going through the doldrums right now. You're, you're in a bit of a lull. There's no spiritual energy in your life. I would say, as a pastor, from this passage, the number one reason is probably because Jesus has fallen off your 
your radar. You're thinking about the apparatus of church, the the paraphernalia of church, the theories of church. No one ever got saved by a theory about church. It's Jesus. Well, they heard that Jesus was coming and a a throb, a thrill ran through the crowd, gathered through the feast, and uh, look at verse 13. So they took, this is of course famous, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even to the King of Israel. Now why these palm branches? Palm branches were a symbol of victory, particularly victory for God's people. So they got streamers and party balloons and flags and they waved them, you know, Jesus is coming. And then they start to shout or sing out this praise to Jesus, Hosanna, or um, um, save, as it is literally, save us, Savior. And they say, blessed, that is, they're declaring that what Jesus is and what Jesus is doing is good, right, great, excellent, the best, the blessing. And blessed, that's, that's the right thing. He's the right person. That's the way to go. That's blessed. That's good. And they're quoting from a psalm, Psalm 118. Uh, it's a psalm that was used at these great feasts and used at Passover. And now John is saying, by telling us that this is what they shouted, that all that is now being fulfilled in Jesus. So the exodus, the rescue from Egypt, and the big story of the Bible, the rescue from Egypt, that is fulfilled, John is saying, in Jesus. The kingship of David, that is also being fulfilled in Jesus. So whether they realize all that at the time or not, but John is saying... By telling us that this is what they shouted, he's saying that they were declaring that Jesus coming into into Jerusalem was coming as king and savior. And this is the victory, the palm branches, the party balloons, the streamers, this is the victory that God has planned all along and it's now being fulfilled. Now, before we go any further, we need to consider a couple of things. How is it that this crowd, this massive crowd, um, some scholars think that Passover swelled to almost a million people. So this is a lot of people, and a portion of those would have been here, perhaps not all of them, but still a lot of people. How is it this crowd could seem to have got so much right on Palm Sunday, but then be a part of crucifying Jesus just a few days later? Many people have asked that question. It's, of course, uh, more than likely that not all the people were here praising Jesus and that they were not the same group of people who shouted later, crucify Jesus. That's quite likely. Nonetheless, it's also true that a city that welcomed Jesus soon after crucified Jesus, so you still got something of the same sort of uh, question. Uh, Well, uh, part of the answer, of course, is that not all of them did welcome Jesus. We'll come to the Pharisees and their response in a moment. But there were elements of the crowd right here, John tells us, who were not praising Jesus but looking to kill Jesus. That's part of the answer. Another part of the answer is that there is, though, a confusion about the time about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah King. They were expecting a military ruler, a conquering political solution, just like David in the past. Natural enough assumption. They were expecting a conquering political leader. How little has changed. How little has changed. So many Christians today also expect that King Jesus will give them a political victory. Or they look for their salvation in the political 
process. Uh, I served as a pastor in a church uh, where the daughter of the great Welsh preacher Lloyd-Jones was a member. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his daughter was there. And her husband was an influential politician, also a member of this church. He became vice president of the European Parliament. So, you know, big time. Uh, When uh, this uh, man was considering going into politics, he asked Martin Lloyd-Jones his advice, and in particular his advice on whether it was okay for a Christian to go into politics. Lloyd-Jones' reply, this man told me, was that for sure it was okay for a Christian to go into politics, but the one thing he must never do is associate his Christianity with his party political convictions. He must never make it seem that the only way you could be a Christian was to vote for him and his party. Now, there are, of course, moral uh, implications of the gospel, and, and they overlap sometimes with political matters. And the church and Christians, in general, publicly, must and there's all the prophetic uh, literature in the Old Testament, must speak out against the evils of abortion and poverty and racism and prejudice and murder and violence and injustice. We must. But there is a lot of sin to go around. And no one is righteous, not even one, according to the Bible. No one is righteous, not even one, neither Republican nor Democrat. Neither are righteous. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem as king, he did not come in as a political king. Now, there is a calling as a Christian to serve in politics, for sure. Go to it, politician. We will equip you support you, love you, pray for you, go to it. There is a need for Christians to vote their conscience and organize to do so. Go to it. There is a need for Christians to advocate for moral matters in politics. For sure, go to it, Christian. But remember, remember that Jesus is the one who saves not politics. And that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he did not ride in on a war horse and he did not campaign for a political party, neither Pharisee nor Sadducee. He came, don't you remember? Look at verse 14. He found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, of course, the symbolism of this quotation from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, the symbolism is pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, I mean, ever seen a donkey? It's not like turning up in a Cadillac or a fancy brand new Mercedes or brand new Beamer, BMW or Rolls Royce or something. It's not like that. It's, It's like turning up in a 1985 Chevy. Can you see the donkey? Big ears. (laughs) Can you hear him? That donkey braying? 
This is not dignified. This is not the sort of thing that the royals do. You do not see Prince Harry and Meghan turn up on a donkey. The president flies in on Air Force One. Jesus turns up on a donkey. Why? Well, John tells us in his interpretation of an addition to the quotation from Zechariah, which he prefaces with just two words, fear not. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey. Fear not. Jesus was not now coming to conquer Jerusalem. He's coming to save Jerusalem. Fear not. You know, I've been a, a pastor in Wheaton for almost a decade now, and I've talked to many people about many personal things, and that's a great privilege and one that I hold dear to me and in great, obviously, confidentiality and all the rest. But I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on Wheaton now. I've still got lots to learn, but I have talked to many people over those years, and I think there's a lot of fear. There's the fear of not being as clever as someone else, so we use long words to make ourselves look clever. There's the fear of not being as rich as someone else, so we try to wear clothes that make us look richer than we are. There's the fear of not being as good as someone else. This, perhaps, more than anything else. This, of course, is why it's hard to get to know people in Wheaton sometimes. Because to allow someone to get to know you means allowing them to get to know you. And that means allowing them to see you as you really are, seeing us as we really are, warts and all. Oliver Cromwell, the military leader involved in the English Civil War, was having his uh, painting taken, and he told the painter to paint him as he was, warts and all. Well, it's hard to get to know someone if they won't show you their warts. And we are frightened that if who we really are is known, or will we be loved? Fear not. Your Savior, your King, is riding on a donkey. On a donkey. When people live in fear, they respond how the Pharisees did. They see all this popularity of Jesus. Instead of rejoicing about it, they take it as a threat. They feel like their power is going to be taken away. Some people, when they live in fear, attack those who make them feel frightened or inadequate or not good enough. Other people run away when they feel like they're in fear or frightened. They hide. They pretend. The Bible has two different modes when it comes to fear. On the one hand, we're told to fear God. This is good. There's not enough of that in churches today. On the other hand, we are told, as here, to fear not. How do you put these two modes of fear in the Bible together in practice? When you truly fear God, you will fear not anyone else. The solution to the fear of man is the fear of God. And true fear of God is not a trembling distance, but in Christ, and because of who Christ is, it's a fear that gives us great joy. There are lots of illustrations of this that people have used uh, down through the years. Uh, it's, it's a bit like perhaps you go down to the Chicago Museum of Art or 
the Art Institute of Chicago, and you see that painting of the people relaxing on a Sunday afternoon by a river in, in, in France, and that painting is huge. And in a certain sense, it's, it fills you with awe just to look at it. But you're not repelled by it. You don't hate it. But it is that over-trivialized word, awesome, fills you with awe, with fear. Or it's a bit like if you're being threatened by an enemy. There's a great army coming towards you, and you run to a fortress. And it's powerful. And it's fearful. But in Christ, you're inside. So you're filled with joy at the same time. So you say, well, how how then do I have that? How do I have that fear not? How do I have the right kind of this and not fear people, what other people think of me? How how do I have that? Well, look, verse 15, you have it by behold. You fear not by beholding. You stand in front of the painting and you stare at it. You, You look at the fortress of God and all his power. You run to him for safety. You go to God and you look at him. You look at Jesus on the donkey, come to save you. You let the truth of who Jesus is come clear in your mind and into your heart. When we see Jesus for who he is, we will praise him. How do we do that? It start, but it starts with getting rid of all these distractions in our minds. A few weeks ago, at one of our services here, we had three or even perhaps more cell phones go off within about a minute or so. It's all of us, isn't it? We're all constantly plugged in these days. Our imaginations, what we behold, are captivated by YouTube or Instagram. It's about allowing the vision of our minds, focusing our minds, beholding this Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Islam has no God like this. Buddha has no savior like this. There is no philosophy like this. There is no other king like this. He has come for you to save you. So will you join in the the festal throng and wave flags and release balloons and shout and sing? Behold, your king riding in on a a donkey, your king, your humble king, come to save you. And so fear not that you might rejoice much and put down the barriers of fear and take out all those pictures of Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever is constantly bombarding our minds and instead, behold, see, Jesus Wow, on a donkey, Savior. So that's what's going on in, uh, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's this massive crowd, several hundred at least, and they're singing and shouting and waving branches and celebrating the Messiah's come, the King is here. And it causes us to run to him to be saved and rejoice in him as the King like they did. 
But now John, in the final part of this passage, moves past the description of what is or what was happening to call his readers to response. The Bible, Bible passages are often structured this way. They're structured as messages. And part of understanding the Bible, reading the Bible, is understanding what its message is, what it is saying, what John intended it to say. And John here outlines then three different kinds of responses that were happening at the time. And he is, as it were, asking us, us which kind of response will we have? The three responses are the disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees. Which are you, says John? Life is found in Jesus, real life, life to the full, the life we're all looking to discover. Well, to have that life, you need to respond to that message. What does that mean? How do I do that? There are three different kinds of responses John is saying. Which will we be? Which will you be? The first response is the response of the disciples, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. How grateful I am for all the times that we read that the disciples did not understand. One of my favorite hymns is, I Cannot Tell. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. But this I know. I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage, how satisfied the needs and aspirations of east or west, of sinner and of sage. But this I know, all flesh shall see his glory, and he shall reap the harvest he has sown, and some glad day he will shine in splendor when the Savior, Savior of the world is known. There are a whole lot of things I cannot tell, I cannot understand, and I'm grateful each time I read about the disciples not understanding something. Of course, this is no excuse not to try to understand things. We're told that when Jesus was glorified, that is when he had died and risen again, they remembered these things, they searched the scriptures, they remembered the triumphal empty Jerusalem and realized what kind of king Jesus was and what kind of savior he was. So we should try to understand and read our Bibles. But, but there are still things that we will not understand. That this side of glory, this side of the coming fulfillment of the triumphal entry, when Jesus shall return with all his angels in great power and redeem the world for glory forever and judge the world that rejects him. Until that moment of his final glory, there will be things that we do not understand. And perhaps there's something in your life that you do not understand now. Maybe it is something intellectual, a teaching or a doctrine. Maybe it is a place of suffering or pain. You cannot understand why God would allow. Maybe it is like the disciples, some great events that you know must have some big significance, but you cannot be sure what it is. One day you will understand. One day all will be explained or you will be so lost in wonder, love, and praise that the explanation will seem trivial compared to the glory that you now see and experience. In the meantime, there are things that we cannot tell, that we do not understand. Rest on the things that you do understand. 
I can understand why in this area of my life there is suffering, but this I know that Christ suffered for me and died on the cross for me, and therefore He loves me. I know that. I cannot understand why this desire I have that I long for is, is, is not finding any fulfillment in this life. I do not understand that, but this I know, that Christ has come to give me life and life to the full, and in Him is life, and in Him all my desires will one day be fulfilled. I cannot understand how I find the resources for this, 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 the money I need for this issue in my life, the budget that you have in your family budget. I've sent spies into the promised land, and some come back with a good report, and some with a bad report that there are giants in the land. I, I cannot understand. But this I know. He who led me out of Egypt and rescued me from slavery, he who kept me safe in the wilderness will land me safe on Jordan's side and the battle belongs to the Lord and in his name I will be victorious. I know that, I understand that and therefore I praise him when I see him coming into Jerusalem. Or perhaps your response is not like the disciples, it's more like the crowds, verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Interestingly enough, I think, they appear, this crowd, to have no doubts at all. Unlike the disciples, the crowd has no confusion, they, they think. Why is that? To my mind, this is characteristic of young faith. It's quite possible, of course, that much of this crowd did not truly believe but were just hanging on. Others of them did believe, but it was a young faith. They'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What else was there? What other proof could be required? A good conclusion. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of questions that they have not yet had to face. Why did he raise Lazarus from the dead and not other people, or at least not yet? There are plenty of other people who died in Jerusalem that year. Why Lazarus? Now, that is a question with an answer. It's a sign to point to the final resurrection to come. But it appears as if the question itself had not even occurred to them. Or if Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as king, why is it that he's coming on a donkey, not a war horse? Why is he coming in so humbly, not to conquer? Is he not God? What does it mean for this king to be savior? Again, that is a question with a good answer, that Jesus has not come to advance his political and military rule, but to save sinners through his death and resurrection. So the gospel might be preached to the ends of the earth, and so that one day he will return and bring all his saved people into his heaven to be with him forever. There'll be a new Jerusalem. That's a... Good answer to the question, but they, they, they do not appear to even be asking the question. Well, perhaps, perhaps you are a bit more like the crowd. Jesus has done great things for you. You read the Bible. You believe in him. He's answered your prayer. He said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, that is excellent, but it's also quite a young faith. There are two errors here that we can make. One is to discourage such young faith. The other is not to seek to mature it. Perhaps you like things simple, good. 
good. I, I heard someone tell me the other day that College Church had a reputation of being erudite, uh, which somewhat amused me when I shared that with someone else at College Church, and they said, I don't know what the word erudite means. Um, sophisticated. I hope not. I hope not that's not our reputation. I realize we're called college church, so perhaps for some that represents intellectual. In England, college means almost trade school. It's university that is the word for elite education. But maybe it does send that message here. But we're not erudites. We are people of the Bible. So if you like things simple, good. Good. Perhaps you like to come along sometimes and not other times. I'm glad you like to come along sometimes. Good. Keep on coming back. And then look for a small group or an adult community. Join in the 20s ministry or the women's Bible study or the men's gathering. Get involved and let the life that you have begun to discover in Christ blossom and bloom and grow and develop more and more. Move from the crowds to the disciples. And then bring in more crowds. We've got uh, postcards this morning to invite friends to church this this November and they'll be handed out as you leave uh, today. Give them to your friends and neighbors. If you're in the crowd, you are probably the very best person to invite people. But then finally, there are the Pharisees. I suppose none of us would hope that there was anyone in that group. Uh, we, none of us would want to be a Pharisee. There's such a figure of caricature, it's hard for us to imagine that there could ever be any such person in church these days. But there were then, look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? Why did they seek to kill Jesus? Surely he had done nothing but good. Surely raising Lazarus from the dead is more than enough evidence for anyone to believe. Surely they also wanted to discover life to the full. And surely they would come to believe in Jesus and find that life in him. Surely. But no, they did not. Why? There is a simple answer, and it may be summarized in one word. Jealousy. Nowhere in the world is uh, jealousy more common than among religious people. Look, they said, the world has gone after him. Look, he's got so popular. They feared they would lose their power. The people who left their control were now going to Jesus. They were jealous. If you can see no reason for someone to attack another person, then likely as not, behind it is jealousy. They are too bright. It makes the person look bad. 
They're too smart, it makes the person look stupid. They're too good-looking, it makes the person look ugly. They are too wealthy, it makes the person look poor. They're too successful, it makes the person look a failure. Jealousy. As the book of Proverbs puts it, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Well, it's hard for us to imagine that anyone in a church these days could fall into this group of the Pharisees. But if there is, let me offer this word to you. It made no difference. Their attacks on Jesus made no difference. In fact, it was all part of God's plan. The solution to jealousy is the sovereignty of a good God. God has given you exactly what you need. He has a perfect plan for you. You will not miss out if you trust God. And what is more, any attacks you make against the Lord and His anointed will only be used by God for His perfect plan of salvation. Put down your weapons. Let go your jealousy. Fear not. And behold the King Jesus coming to save you, riding on a donkey. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we do bow before you and worship you, King Jesus. We pray that we'd have the right kind of fear of you, that you are, you are God. And in fearing you, we pray that we would fear not. Help us to behold King Jesus coming in on a donkey to save us, to by your Spirit, Lord. Would you sovereignly open our minds and our hearts to let go of our jealousy and trust you, the good, the good God, the good sovereign with our lives? Yes, indeed, Lord Jesus, you will reign and we bow before you and praise you as your kingdom spreads from shore to shore. In the name of Jesus, amen.